Thanks, Dom. That was so much information. <laughs> Dom and I are going to be celebrating our 20th anniversary uh, next month of friendship. And he still looks the same. So, <laughs> um, friends, it is such a privilege to be here. Um, my family and I have been here for the month of August in California visiting um, our family and as well as our, our church family. And it's just amazing to see what God is doing, particularly in the coastlands. And it's been such a privilege to know that even as my family and I have moved over to London to plant the church, we feel so connected to and supported by you guys. There are so many people, funny enough, in particular from Ventura who come to London or they're passing through London on a layover and you make it your aim to go into central London to visit Reality Church London just to like pray for us and say hi. And it just means the world to us. I'm, I'm serious. More people, that, for some reason, just from Ventura, like, hey, we're from Ventura. I'm like, this is amazing. And you guys are like, can we pray for you? We feel 100% supported by our church family. People ask us all the time, like, do you guys feel supported? I say 100%, mainly because of your prayers. And so from the bottom of my heart, I just want to say thank you. I just want to th say thank you. It's just such a privilege to be a part of this church family, and I'm thrilled to be here. This is actually my first time at Reality Ventura on a Sunday, so this is fun. <laughs> and you guys have been going through a series called A Kingdom Family, and I would love to, for us to think this morning about what it means to be a family of disciples. There's so many different ideas attached to that word disciple. You may be here in church for the first time. You don't even know what that means. Let's dig into that. Let's think about it because disciple is really a summary of all the different things you've been talking about in this series. So to do that, if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 28? Matthew chapter 28, and I'll read verses 16 through 20. We'll read the text, a passage that is so familiar to Christians that we actually lose a lot of the, the details in it. So let's read the text, let's pray, and let's ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us and to change us this morning. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 to 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end end of the age. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that every person in this room matters to you. I thank you that you have called us to belong to you, to be a part of your family. You have also given us an incredible purpose and mission in this life. And I pray that you would help us to understand for the first time or perhaps more deeply, what it means to be a disciple, what it means to make disciples, what on earth you have us here for, why Reality Ventura exists here in this city, and what we are to be doing. Father, if anyone's discouraged, if anyone feels disconnected or lonely, I pray that you would remove that 
and replace it with that overwhelming sense of being accepted and empowered by you. Holy Spirit, be our teacher, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. What exactly does it mean to be a Christian? I wonder how you would answer that question if someone asked you this week. How would you answer that? What's interesting to me is that in the Bible, this is on the screen, followers of Jesus are called Christians three times, believers 15 times, but disciples 235 times. It is obviously so important for us to understand what that means if it is so important to Jesus. And to do that, we need to know that this word disciple is not actually unique to Christianity. If you do your homework, you will find that the word disciple was used very commonly 2,000 years ago. Different philosophies of life, different teachers would have disciples and make disciples. To put it simply, a disciple is someone who learns from another in order to become like them. And in that sense, friends, every one of us is a disciple of someone. Whoever that is has a significant influence on your life. I mean, we learn this at the youngest age, right? We, we follow other people. We imitate other people. Uh, my seven-year-old goes to this uh, particular school in the area of London in which we live, and oftentimes this school runs fairs, these school fairs where they, you know, sell cupcakes and all these other things. And my wife tried to get involved in the life of the school by learning the wonderful art of face painting. Very popular with the kids. And so there on this school fair day, my, my wife shows up and she's got all her, her little like tools and she's ready to, you know, paint some faces, but all the kids are super shy and they don't come. Until my seven-year-old, the little trendsetter, comes up and she's like, I'm on a unicorn on my forehead. And everyone's like, oh my gosh. And so she gets this uni magical unicorn on her forehead with like clouds and rainbows. And then all of a sudden, all the other kids are like, we want a unicorn too. And they all line up and everyone's got like unicorns on their foreheads for the rest of the day. My seven-year-old was making disciples. She's like, follow me. We learn this at the youngest age, but I suppose it reaches its most embarrassing stage in your teenage years. You like really want to be like somebody else? Now, before, long before I followed Jesus, I followed other people, mainly mus musicians, as Dominic so well uh, told you about. There were particular musicians that I wanted to learn from so that I would become like these, these bands that I would follow. And it really shaped not just the way that I, uh, that I dressed or spoke, but even the way I thought, my political views, all these other things, you know, really actually shaped me. I followed them. I learned from them. And I ended up becoming like them. What was I? I was a disciple. But of course, it's not just me and it's not just a certain age group. You see this everywhere. Beyonce has disciples. And they all belong to this thing called the beehive. Anyone? No? Every time, put it this way, every time you see someone trying to follow the career path or the lifestyle of a successful person, a businessman, businesswoman, musician, artist, whatever, who you're giving much attention to, you are functioning like a disciple. So the question is, friends, who are you following? Because whoever you follow 
will define your life's mission and purpose. Ultimately, it will determine your eternity, your destiny. So for those of you who are not yet Christians here this morning, what does that mean? Hopefully we can unpack that for our time together. But for those of you who are Christians, the question I have for you is this. Could other people tell? If others follow my life, if they, if they come to, to, to London and they look at the way that I spend my time, my money, my days, could they actually tell that I am a learner of Jesus? Here's why this is important. In the same way that everyone is a disciple, whether they realize it or not, everyone is making disciples, whether they realize it or not. Your life is an influence right now. You are influencing other people right now for better or for worse. You need to know that. The question is, how are you using that influence? How should you be using that influence? When Jesus began his ministry 2,000 years ago, he began preaching the good news and calling people to follow him, to be disciples. And here in Matthew chapter 28, the end of the gospel account, Matthew's early record of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, before Jesus ascends into heaven, he tells his followers to go and make disciples. What does that mean? It's an important question to ask because I've noticed that there's a lot of disagreement amongst many Christians about what discipleship is actually about. For some people, discipleship is all about evangelism. Discipleship is about mission. Winning people to Jesus Christ. Investing in evangelistic events. So when you ask this type of person, what is discipleship all about? They say, introducing people to Jesus. And when they ask you, are you making disciples? What they mean is, are you hitting the streets? Are you sharing evangelistic YouTube videos on your Facebook page? Are you passing out Christian literature? Are you doing those types of things? But other Christians, they say, oh, no, 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 no. Discipleship is something a little bit different. When they think the word discipleship, they think a process of maturity. They say, oh, yeah, those other people, they're evangelizing, but we are making disciples. Think of deep dive conversations early in the morning with coffee, of course, with a person who's older than them with, with gray hair, studying the creeds, reading 30 chapters of the Bible, memorizing at least 10. That's what they think of when they think of discipleship. And so when these people ask about discipleship in the church, this is what they are thinking. When they ask you, are you being discipled? They mean, are you meeting up for coffee regularly with someone older than you to memorize scripture? And we seem to be caught in between these two things. Is discipleship about mission or is discipleship about maturity? Friends, what I want you to see from Matthew chapter 28 is that discipleship is about all of the above. And understanding this will change who influences you and how you influence others for good. So based on this text, I want to say three things to you that hopefully will be practical and shape the way that you think is reality ventura about how you think about discipleship. So to put it simply, first of all, discipleship means knowing and showing Jesus. If I had to give a simple definition, that's what it would be. Discipleship is about knowing and showing Jesus. Notice the center of this passage when Jesus gives this epic speech. 
He talks about all authority in verse 18 being given to him in heaven and on earth. Now, Jesus had, of course, already claimed this kind of authority. He already claimed himself to be the Son of God. But in light of the fact that just a little while ago, he was rejected by the public masses, he was rejected by the religious leaders, crucified by the Roman powers that be, he now, having risen again from the dead, reaffirms his authority with fresh perspective for his followers. He says, my life wasn't merely taken, my life was given. I sacrificed myself, Jesus said, on the cross as a ransom so that you and I could be forgiven of sin. He has conquered death, showing that his sacrifice was perfect and all that he said was true. This is not a new authority. This is a vindicated authority. Jesus says, yes, everything that I said is true. And what I want you to notice is this. Jesus begins this great commission, as people call it, by reminding us who he is. Do you know that discipleship begins here? Knowing Jesus. Before it is ever something that you do, it's someone that you know. He's reminding us, and, and that's what we constantly need, friends. We need to be reminded who Jesus is, what he has done. And in light of this, he gives his followers a mission. As I mentioned, this passage has been famously called the Great Commission. And there are actually four verbs here in this text that help us understand what that means. But what I want you to notice, something that actually becomes very clear when you look at the original Greek language, there's actually only one command and the rest are supporting verbs. A lot of Christians have always viewed this passage as containing one command, which is to go. And if you ever go to a missionary conference or if you do what I did and go to a Bible college, you will often hear great speeches and lectures saying, what part of go don't you understand? Like, you need to get out of here. You need to go to the nations. But that's not actually the main command in the passage. In the Greek language, the command is make disciples. How do we do that? Three ways. By going, baptizing, and teaching. The main command is everybody, here's your mission, Jesus is saying, go and make disciples, men and women who know and show Jesus, men and women who learn from Jesus in order to become like Jesus. And you're going to do this by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. So let's think about that for a few moments because it will shape the way in which you involve yourself in the mission of the church. So the first verb there is go. To the nations, meaning to anyone and to everyone. This is how we think about discipleship. There's not one type of person. It's anyone and everyone. This ranges from introducing people to Jesus for the first time as well as talking to veterans in the faith about Jesus continually. The first stage of discipleship, of course, is by being intentional about the people around you. So what does it mean for you to make disciples? It means that you wake up tomorrow morning and recognize that for whatever reason, God has you placed in the neighborhood that you are in, around the people that are there, and in the job that you have so that you might think creatively and prayerfully about how you can show Jesus to them. Sadly, many of us forget this. We just get into our routine. We, we forget about the state of, of our neighbors, that they are in desperate need of hearing this good news. 
My family often, my children in particular, they often uh, complain that we've moved so many times, and yes, it is a pain, but the one benefit is that it constantly reminds us of why God has us on this earth. We move a lot, and we're like, okay, we got to learn to get to know our neighbors. Like, my kids are like, why are we doing this? Because we're following Jesus, kids. Okay. <laughs> why are we doing this again? We're following Jesus. We're trying to know and show Jesus to other people. Okay. Why, why are we doing this again? Like, it's a constant reminder to us to be intentional. This is an encouragement for you, friends. Part of discipleship begins of just thinking, how can I pray for my neighbors? How can I pray for the people that I work with? I need to be intentional about investing in people who are not yet Christians. But this is also a call to be intentional to invest in people who are Christians. Because again, Matthew 28 is not referring only to evangelism or to maturity, but both. And the reason that discipleship is about both mission and maturity is because Christians need the gospel as well as non-Christians. Do you know that? I need the gospel as much as a non-Christian. We are not only saved by the gospel, we are also sanctified by the gospel. We not only need to meet Jesus, we also need to mature in Jesus. The gospel is not like one little classroom inside of this bigger thing called the Christian life. The gospel is the entire building in which there are a lot of little classrooms that you are to learn from. In order for me to grow in my marriage, I need the gospel. In order for me to grow as a pastor, I need the gospel. To grow in my own holiness, I need the gospel. And my neighbors who are lost and dying and separated from God, they need the gospel. And that is why it is the source of both our salvation and sanctification. In calling us to make disciples, he's dealing with both evangelism, mission, and maturity. We must start and continue with Jesus as a follower. We must meet and mature in Jesus. And this is captured in the next word, baptizing. So first of all, he says, go and make learners of Jesus. Go anywhere and everywhere. Non-Christians as well as Christians, you're called to make disciples. And one of the ways we do this is by baptizing. When we hear the gospel... For the first time, we realize that we are fallen, that we are broken in our sin, and yet we are also loved. God sent His Son, Jesus, to come live for us, die for us, rise again for us. And when we put our faith in Him, Jesus calls us to publicly identify with our decision to follow Him by being baptized, going down into the water, having somebody else pull you up out of the water, which is a symbol of what has happened in your life. I love that you're doing a baptism in two weeks. If you have not been baptized, it's not a suggestion made by Jesus. It is a command. It's, Jesus is not saying, hey, if you want to be heavy users of Christianity, like maybe get baptized. He doesn't say that. If you're a follower of Jesus, publicly identify with him by being baptized. And as you do, it's an outward sign of an inward change. And the act itself is a symbol of what has happened in your life. Your old life, your life of sin goes down into the grave. And just like somebody else pulls you up out of the water, you couldn't save yourself. Jesus saved you, pulled you up. You are new. You are clean. You are adopted in Jesus Christ. And that's what he's called us to go and do. It's an incredible thing. If you've not been baptized, sorry, this is a big advertisement. Two weeks, get baptized if you've not been baptized. But having said that, there's also more to this text than physical baptism. The word baptism means immersion. And when Jesus says baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, what he's saying is help other people become immersed in the life of God. 
You are to be baptized. You are to be immersed in the reality of who God is. You are to be immersed in the reality of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let me use an example. All of us have been baptized into a culture, whether you realize it or not. In my younger years, in my teenage, like, stick-it-to-the-man years, you know, when I was, like, fighting anarchy, you know, with my guitar and three chords or whatever, and then I got older and then I started paying taxes and I was like, wait a minute, I'm the man, don't stick it to me. I was baptized into a particular culture. And you could see that in the way that I live. I got my identity from it. Like, I am a musician. I am sticking it to the man. I am changing the world. Or whatever I was thinking when I was 15, which I can't really remember, by the grace of God. (laughs) But all of you, you might say, I don't relate with that. Fair enough. You are identifying with something. I see this often in parents. One group of parents in particular, parents who have children that go to USC. Can we talk about this? If you are a parent and you had a child that goes to USC, you are immersed in the life of a Trojan. You wear like sweatshirts, you wear hats, you put like 27 stickers on your car like, my child is a Trojan. You're immersed, you're baptized. Or maybe it's your place of work. When you start a new job, a new company, what, what are they trying to do when they kind of, you know, um, orient you within that company. They're trying to immerse yourselves in their culture. Like, this is what we do. This is who we are. We're giving you free t-shirts and discounts so that you would become an evangelist for our our company so that you'd get more people to work for us and more people to buy our things. You're getting immersed into a culture. And friends, what Jesus is saying here is when you are baptized, that's a physical representation of something that is to happen in the whole of your life, that your true identity is not in where you work or where you live, what you've done or where you're from. It's in what Jesus Christ has done for you. You could say, before I'm anything else, I'm a child of God. I'm new in Christ. I'm a new creation. I am more than a conqueror. This is who I am. We are called as disciples to make disciples, baptizing them physically, practically, but also helping them to become immersed in the life of God. But there's more than that. We go, we baptize, and we teach. Notice that Jesus says, teaching them in the middle of this paragraph to observe all that I have commanded. All who follow Jesus Christ not only have a responsibility to know him, but also to show what it is like to live for him. At its core, discipleship is about teaching, and we teach with words. It's what we're doing now. It's what we in our churches, we do on Sundays. There are different ways we do this. There are formal and informal ways that we teach. There are public and there are private ways that we teach. On the one hand, there is the responsibility of the leaders in the church, the pastor elders who are gifted with the gift of teaching, to open up the Word of God and to teach the words of the Bible to you. And guess what? That is part of your discipleship. Do you know that? The reason I make that point is because I hear a lot of people over the years who come on a Sunday, they might go to a community group, you know, for a while, they come to the church for a year, and they think, well, yeah, I like all this, and the music's, like, not so bad, but, like, are you into discipleship? Usually, they have this idea about discipleship that clearly doesn't have anything to do with Sundays or community groups or whatever. But I would like to hopefully correct that thinking. You being here right now in this room under the preached word of God is part of your discipleship. 
the classes that this church runs for you, the training courses, the gospel project being taught to your children. Guess what? That's a part of your discipleship. So when people come in and say, do you do discipleship in the church? I always ask, what do you mean by discipleship? Well, I mean, will you meet with me seven times a week um, with coffee? And I'm like, hey, hang on. Let me hopefully clarify what it means to make disciples. There are formal and informal ways, and one of them is as we gather together. But it extends beyond that, of course. We then get together in our daily and weekly rhythms of life. This kind of teaching from the pulpit and also to one another is a part of your discipleship. But there is another sense in which this teaching is broader. Jesus did not only say to teach people. He says, teach them to do what I have commanded. Teach them to put into practice what is then being taught. And in this way, Jesus, in this great commission, is actually echoing the words of Deuteronomy when God gave his law to the people of Israel. Listen to these words, Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the Lord speaking. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. A shorthand of, a way of saying that the law, the teaching, the truth of God should be on your hearts and minds and lips and put into practice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The point, friends, is that discipleship goes beyond just hearing and learning by information going into your mind, it must be put into practice. When I tell my children, clean your room. Imagine if eight hours later my daughter comes back to me and says, Dad, I remembered every word you said. Oh, great. What did I say? You said, clean your room. I can even say it in Greek. I'm like, wow, amazing. So did you clean your room? No. Oh, oh, that so, so that's a command, you know, clean your room is a call to action. It's not like a concept, you know, like you have a messy room. It needs to be clean. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know. But, but dad, I memorized it. Many of us who've been Christians for a long time, and please do not misunderstand me. You must read, study, know the Word of God stored in your heart. Jesus said the Word of God is more necessary than your daily food. But it doesn't stop there. The ministry of the Word continues as we put it into practice by the power of the Spirit. The book of James reminds us that we are not to be deceived, being only hearers of the Word and not doers of the Word. Sadly, Many of us, our discipleship ends when we memorize a verse, but we don't actually do anything with it. We don't actually allow it to change our lives. Like, I memorized the entire book of verse Corinthians. Like, cool, so are you stopping sinning? No. <laughs> okay, well, uh, maybe do something. Maybe allow the word of God to change you. We need to put it into practice. For example, when my family and I moved to London, we needed to be discipled, meaning that how to live as a Londoner needed to be modeled for us. It continues to be so. And thankfully, we had some great friends when we moved in. They're like, Tim, th this is like how you get around on public transport. Great, I'm being discipled. I'm like, how do you do banking? Which is a nightmare, by the way. But they're like, this is how you do it. 
And, and these, these are kind of the, this is the pattern for you to follow. Like, Chaddix, come along, follow us. We will show you how to navigate the city. They were discipling me as Londoners. In other words, we are to model what the Christian life looks like. When I learned how to pray, I learned primarily from two ways. Words that I read in the Bible and by people praying around me. And I'm so thankful for that model because I didn't know how to pray. I was like, I'm a new Christian. All I know is Jesus saved me and I'm forgiven of my sins. Thankfully, I had around me some great, wonderful Christian men and women who when they prayed, I thought, oh, that's how you pray. I not only had a concept of prayer, they were modeling it for me. And so the way that I learned to pray was by listening to other people pray. Friends, at times, discipleship is simply as basic as that. Bringing people into your life and just modeling the truth of the gospel. When you're going through tough times, when you're suffering, you can model what it's like to apply the truth of the gospel in your suffering in a way that other people can see so that they can learn for themselves what it will be like when they go through times of sufferings and they need to learn to apply the truth of the gospel in their lives. When you're facing financial difficulties, the way that you respond to that, either with anger towards God or submission to God, is influencing all the people around you. Did you know that? And in the, by the grace of God, the moments where you accept, God, this is a hard time, but I'm going to learn to trust you because I know that as a Christian, I'm not exempt from hard times. The cross shows me that. Jesus was not exempt from suffering. He didn't go around suffering. He went through suffering in order to bring redemption. And I am reminded in that moment, and then I put that into practice, other people around me can see that. Well, I saw the Chaddix. They went through a hard time, but they remember the truth of God that he doesn't go around suffering, but through suffering to bring redemption. So I I'm going to learn to apply the gospel in my life, in my suffering. This is a part of discipleship. This is a part of what it means to not just know it, but to actually put it into practice. To be a disciple maker is to help model to other people how to deal with the daily issues of life as a follower of Jesus. It ultimately begins with scripture, but underneath scripture, we can use books. We can enjoy relationships. We can go to classes. We can enjoy experiences together. And what I want you to notice, secondly, is this is not something that we do by ourselves. Discipleship is about knowing and showing Jesus. But secondly, discipleship is a community project. We are a kingdom of disciples. Now notice, who is in this scene? And how does Jesus commission them? The first thing I want to point out is that discipleship is for everyone. Did you notice who is being addressed in verse 16 and 17? It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, including Peter, who famously denied Jesus, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said. Did you notice that? Some worshipped and some doubted. Jesus calls together a group of broken, messy individuals to be commissioned. Don't miss that. Some worshipped, some struggled with doubt, but Jesus still commissioned them all. I say this because many of you think discipleship is for super holy, mature Christians, but certainly not for us weaker, ordinary Christians. Oh, well, I can't make disciples because, like, 
I'm not super holy like so-and-so over there. Like, clearly, discipleship must be for, for those people. But that's not what the text says. Jesus addresses them all. Some worshipped, others doubted. Jesus commissions them all. And I think he does this for many reasons, but one of them must be this. All of us will struggle with doubt. But one of the ways we win the war with doubt is through obedience. We don't need to come to Jesus and prepare for discipleship by sorting ourselves out and getting ourselves together. Many of you relate to God just like that. God, I'll come to Sunday when I feel like I've cleaned myself up. That is not the good news of Jesus Christ. He came and called those messy, broken people to himself and commissioned them all the same because it's not about our power to perform. It is about his power to perform. Discipleship is a call for every believer, not special believers. It's for every one of you, and I fear that some of you feel disconnected and alienated and on the outside feeling like you can't participate, that you can't join in to the life of this church. I'm not mature enough. I don't know the Bible well enough. I can't quote scripture as much as those people. It doesn't matter, friend. You are in. You are in this family. As you've learned, when you're adopted, you are in. Because Jesus does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. He doesn't say, look at all that you have to offer for my kingdom, Tim Chaddock. Well, it'd be great to have you on board. Come on in. I guarantee you that did not happen. Rather, God looked at me in mercy and compassion. He said, you're a sinner headed to death, but because I love you, I'm going to make you new and I'm going to put you into ministry. And I'm still to this day like, what? This is amazing. He doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. This is for every one of us, not for special category of super elite holy Christians. This is for you if you've decided to follow Jesus. And it is something that we do together. Now let's get practical for a moment. Because oftentimes discipleship is viewed as a one-on-one -on -one only activity. And I would like to dispel that myth. Jesus spoke to them in community, commissioned them as a community to call people into community. We do this together as a family. When Jesus was resurrected, he did not meet with, he did not schedule like 800,000 coffees with each one individually, like Peter, 8 a.m. to 9 a.m., okay? Don't forget. Thomas, we'll do you on Thursday because, you know, you doubted. Like, Jesus didn't schedule all these one-on-one -on -one meetings. He called them together as his disciples, and he commissioned them together. Jesus calls the family, he calls the community to make disciples. So when people hear the word discipleship, they often picture the one-on-one -on -one mentoring commitment involving, yes, coffee. Many of you are frustrated in the life of this church because you are going around looking for the one. No, not, the, not that one. Not the one you're going to marry. The one who's going to mentor you. You're looking around you're like, could it be them? The usher opened the door for me. Will you disciple me? And sometimes when people ask me, like, Pastor Tim, can you, you know, like, can, can you, like, find someone to, 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 to disciple me? And sometimes I feel like I run e-harmony for the church. People are like, I'd like a mentor um, to disciple me, and I want them to be within the age range of like 57 to 59, not older, not younger. Um, educated, but not too educated, not like Ivy League, because I don't feel insecure. And like, I'm like, I'm not running a dating website, okay? 
So sadly, people have put all of their eggs into one basket thinking that only one person can mentor them. Or maybe it needs to be the leader in the church. Some of you might be frustrated. You're like, I emailed Pastor Dominic and, and, and Billy and Chad to, to meet with them seven times a week for coffee. And they said, no, what kind of church is this? Oh, it's a kind of church that is not controlled by your narcissism. That's what kind of church this is. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we do this together as a family. We do, we do this together. We all share in that responsibility. Now, please do not get me wrong. One-on-one -on -one meetings are awesome. Yes, Paul invested in Timothy, and it was great. I'm not saying that discipleship is less than that. What I'm saying is it's more than that. And we miss out on the whole benefit and blessing of the body of Christ when we put all the weight of our growth and maturity on one person to be our personal Holy Spirit. And it was never meant to be the case. I don't have one person that I go to for everything I need to be taught about Jesus Christ. You know what I have? A family. I have a family. I have a church community. And within that church community are all kinds of different men and women who have different experiences, and I can go to different members of the family at different times to learn different things. If I need to learn about my marriage as a disciple of Jesus Christ, I'm going to go to some, some married couples that I know who have grown, who have been through tough times, and I'll learn from them. And it's probably not just going to be one married couple. If I need to learn about how to steward my finances well, I'm going to go to you know, men and women that I know who do that well and can teach me something. If you want to learn what it means to, to grow as a married couple, find different married couples. If you want to learn what it means to be content in a life of singleness, find other single men and women. If you want to learn what it means to apply your faith to your work, find different men and women who are in the business community of Ventura County and learn from them. But please don't put it, all the pressure on one person. We are a family of disciples. And this broadens my perspective, and it should broaden your perspective. There is no monopoly on who can disciple and who can be discipled. There's a man in our church named Peter who got radically saved in December. He overdosed on drugs, went into a coma, woke up a few weeks later. By the grace of God, he didn't die. Met a doctor in central London whose name was Tim. Gave him a Bible and said, hey, you need to accept Jesus. And you should go to this church pastor by another guy named Tim who will teach the Bible. Shows up at church, gives his life to Jesus. We baptize him on Easter Sunday. He's in my community group. And you know what? Well, oh, that, that is awesome. And you know what? I learned from him. I learned from that man. I need Peter in my life to teach me about Jesus. And he needs me in his life, to teach him about Jesus. And in that way, Paul the Apostle is a wonderful example. Listen to these words that the Apostle Paul wrote to a new church in Rome. He says in Romans chapter 1, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Wait a minute, Paul, you're an apostle. You wrote a third of the New Testament. So we, of course, believe that the first part of that statement is true. Paul says, hey, I'm going to show up to Rome, and I am going to impart to you a spiritual gift to strengthen you. But what we don't expect is verse 12. He says, that is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Isn't that wonderful, friends? Paul says, you know what? I'm human, and I need you in my life. I think many of us miss out on the growth and maturity the Holy Spirit wants to bring in our lives because we pick and choose who can invest in us. And yet Jesus says, here's my church. 
Is it full of broken, messy people? Yes, it is. Is it full of hypocrites? Yes, it is. In fact, how many times have you heard that? Oh, the church is full of hypocrites. You know what I say? No, it's not. There's always room for one more. (laughs) You can use that one. (laughs) We're broken, messy people. Jesus is our Savior, not another person in the row sitting next to you. And we help each other learn about Jesus. And in that, we do remember that it can be hard. People do let us down. People that you were relying on and counting on, even in this community, have let you down. And some of you are actually nursing wounds from that. You expected people to email you, to call you, to meet up with you. And maybe they had made that commitment, and they have let you down. And some of you have a little bit of bitterness, discontent in your own heart because of it. Wherever you're at, friends, that's why we need to know the last thing that I want to say to you. Discipleship comes with a divine promise. Jesus didn't promise that the family would never let you down. Jesus said, I will never let you down. What you cannot miss is that discipleship begins and ends with Jesus, just like this section begins and ends with Jesus. And there's two aspects of what he says to you that I want you to take to your heart as we prepare to respond in worship. Jesus sends you with power. To do this whole discipling thing, to be a part of this church community, to be a part of a kingdom family, Jesus sends you with power, meaning that this whole task given to you to learn and to teach others does not rest on your strength or your authority, but the authority of Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Now, therefore, go. What he's saying is this. You are in the closest possible association with the one who has power over everything. I don't know about you, but that's good news for me this morning. Jesus wants to remind you, hey, I know that life is hard and things are crazy and you may feel out of control, but know this, if you believe in me, you are in the closest possible relationship with the person who controls everything. That's not a bad gig. (laughs) Isn't that incredible? And the Holy Spirit empowers us to do what we could never do on our own. This should so fill us with boldness and confidence and courage because our resources are not small, they are great. And what makes the efforts of this church and of your ministry effective is not your power, it's the attraction factor of Jesus. This is incredible because oftentimes we think as a church like, oh, are people going to want to come? Are they going to like the sermon? Are they going to like the music? You know what? The chief attraction factor of the church always has been and always will be the power of Jesus Christ. Our job is simply just, hey, we want to show off Jesus in our songs. We want to show off Jesus in our preaching. When we pray, we pray not in our name, but in the name of Jesus. He sends you with power. But lastly, he comforts you with his presence. He says, and I love this, I will be with you always, even to the very end. Don't we all want someone to say that to us? Like a friend, your spouse, I'll be with you forever. Right? We all sing about it in love songs, right? Like, I'll do anything. I'll climb a mountain for you. Would you really climb a mountain? No. Well, why are you saying that? It's a metaphor. What's a metaphor for it? That I do anything. Would you climb a mountain? No. Not so with Jesus. I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. Aren't we all afraid that something could like ruin or jeopardize the relationships we have? Marriage, family, friends, church. Well, the only two things that can ruin our relationship with God are sin and death, and Jesus conquered both. 
Sin and death, they're the only two things that could ruin the relationship. My sin could keep me from him. God said, I'll take care of that by sending my son. Oh, what's this whole thing about death? Jesus conquered the grave. He's risen again. And so he says, I will be with you always, even to the end. Notice, he didn't say, I will only be with you on your good days. Religion, religiosity says, I will, God will only be with you on your good days. Religion says God will only be with you when you're measuring up to that perfect standard. The gospel says God will be with you even on your worst days. And this could not be more true when we look at this person in that crowd on that day, Peter, who would go on to be the apostle. Peter famously denied that he even knew Jesus after spending years with him. And when Jesus rose again from the dead days later, you know what he did? He sought out Peter, not to shame him, but to restore him. And when he did find Peter, he said the same two words that he first spoke to him. The first two words ever spoken to Peter also happened to be the last two words ever spoken to Peter recorded in John's gospel. And you know what those two words are? Follow me. Jesus pursues you, and he pursues me, and he says, follow me. Our relationship is not built on how well we love God, but how perfectly he has loved us. The cross, friends, means that our forgiveness is already secured. Today, we're calling you to simply trust in that. Today, we're calling you to rest in that and draw near to him. Know him so that you might be able to, to show him. Peter went on to show great courage. Where did that come from? He'd been with Jesus. And as we live for Jesus, we help other people know Jesus. So my challenge is this. Can other people tell that we've been with Jesus? That's what discipleship is about. Some of you have not yet decided to follow Jesus, and I want to give you that opportunity this morning. If you want to know that you're forgiven of all your sins, if you want to know that you will live forever with God and not be eternally separated from him, Simply pray today, Jesus, save me. Pray from your heart the simplest prayer. Save me, Jesus, not because of what I've done, but because of what you have done. Trust in him. Trust in him today. He invites you today to be your Lord and your Savior. Stop trying to save yourself. And for those of you who are following, some of you are following at a distance. And that's why there's been that lack of like warmth and growth in your life. And Jesus simply calls you to draw near to him. He doesn't push you away. He draws you near to himself. You say, well, I have my doubts. I have my brokenness. He says, bring them to me. Just as these disciples carried their doubts and Jesus commissioned them, he calls you to himself today. Let's draw near to him. Because what Jesus wants for you is to be with him the very source of your life, your joy, your peace, the greatest gift that he could ever give you is the gift of himself. This is the heart of Christianity. This is the gospel, and it's all found in this invitation. Follow me and help other people do the same. Let's pray together. Father, I pray right now for those who feel discouraged, isolated, and alienated. I pray for those who feel that they have nothing to offer in this church family. I pray that you would remove those lies in Jesus' name and replace them with the truth. That because they are adopted, because they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, they are a part of this family. And they have something to learn and they have something to teach. So I pray the devil would not keep them away. 
I pray for those who feel wounded by the church, maybe even this church. I pray that you'd heal them today. I pray that today would be a significant turning point for those people in particular. That they would say, Jesus, I've been carrying these wounds, but you know what? I believe today you died for my sins just like you died for their sins. I'm putting my trust in you as Lord and Savior to change broken and messy people like me and like those people. Father, I pray for those who don't yet know you. May they put their trust in you right now and not waste another moment of their life. And for those following at a distance, I pray that right now, even as we worship and declare who you are, that they would draw near to you. Make us a family of disciples. May we learn from you to become like you. Holy Spirit, do that even now as we respond and worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, the Spirit of God is inviting us to do that even now. Not to disconnect, to check our phones, but to press in, to allow these truths to sink down to the bottom of our hearts. Communion is available here on the stage, and I invite any one of you who have professed the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior to push your way past the people in the rows. Come forward, take the bread, which represents Christ's body broken for you. Dip it in the cup, which represents his blood shed for you. This is why you're accepted, because of what he's done. This is why you can draw near, because of what he has done. This is why you can go forth in confidence and power, because of what he has done. This is why you can know that you're accepted in this family, because of what he has done. This is why you can know that the miraculous is possible in and through your life, because of what he has done. So let's celebrate that. Come forward. Get on your knees. Lift your hands. Lift your voice to the one who is greater than your doubts, greater than your brokenness, greater than your weaknesses, the one who literally conquered sin and death. Come forward now and do that. And as you need prayer, there are men and women to my left and to my right. They're here to pray with you and for you and over you. If you need healing, come forth and receive prayer. If you need strength, come and receive prayer. If you need guidance, come and receive prayer. If you need encouragement, come and receive prayer. But by all means, Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Friends, let's do that. Let's press in now and let's invite the Holy Spirit to do his work in us.